0: This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is Episode 64. truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, we are going to talk about Superman number 26, which is a fill-in issue between arcs. Uh, it's going to be kind of a short discussion on that, but it's still an interesting and noteworthy issue, I think. We're going to talk about New Superman 13, where Con Kenan continues to deal with the Uprising of his predecessor, Superman Zero, or as he refers to himself in this issue, Emperor Superman. And we're going to talk about our second prelude episode, our prelude issue to Dark Knight's Metal, which is Dark Days, the casting. I don't, yeah, I am, okay, 100% sure that Superman is not in this issue at all. So I'm not going to do a super deep dive on it, but I am going to go over the plot points of it and touch on some things in it that I find interesting and that will get us set up to our uh, beginning of our full discussion of Dark Knight's Metal next month, or at least next month in terms of uh, publication. But before we get into all that, as always, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, the last couple fortress segments that I've talked about, I went into the first two pillars of the philosophy of truth, justice, and hope. Two segments ago, I talked about truth and how it's not only important to be honest with others, but possibly even more important to be honest with yourself. In in my experience, you cannot be fully honest with others if you're not being fully honest with yourself about your feelings and your intentions. In the last segment, I talked about justice, not only the, the modern interpretation of justice, of people who commit wrongdoing facing those consequences, but also of the classical stoic definition of justice of just being someone who contributes to society and being someone who is kind and respectful and helpful to others. So it would follow that this episode, I am going to talk about hope and When I think of hope, I don't mean it in the way that's often dismissed as I hope things are going to be okay. I think of it as perseverance when things are not okay. And that could run a wide gamut of what you consider to be not okay. It could be something massive like the loss of a loved one or the or the loss of a job, or some other financial crisis. It could be, you know, the ending of a relationship. It could be, it could be something as I don't want to say small, but but comparatively small, as just if you have the type of brain that doesn't make the happy chemicals as often as it should, just struggling with feelings of overwhelming anxiety and depression and to me hope is holding on through that it's not giving up and by not giving up I mean anywhere from you know doing like the movie um oh I want to say singles yeah the early 90s like the grunge movie you know where the the guy's girlfriend breaks up with him so he just like stops shaving and stops bathing and stops going to work you know just kind of not participating in life, you know, for a while. Or, on the more extreme example, people who literally give up on life itself. And um, there's an example that I want to point to. Recently in the news, I think a lot of people are familiar with the story of the The trans woman who was a member of the Montana State Legislature, I I apologize, I don't remember her full full name. I know her her first name is Zoe. I cannot remember her last name off the top of my head. But recently she was banned from participating in person in the legislature and she was banned from any uh, committees in the legislature because she stood up for trans rights and stood up against an anti-trans bill that the legislature was was attempting to pass at the time. I think it is fully passed now. I don't remember if it's been signed into law or not, Um, but because she stood up, she was banned. And um, as part of her standing up against this bill, she talked about how banning gender-affirming care for teenagers who, who don't identify with their gender of birth or the gender they were assigned at birth can have um, suicidal consequences. And, you know, I, I can't imagine what that would be like to be trapped in the gender of a body that you don't identify with. And I don't pretend like I can, but I can empathize. And, um, you know, regardless of her, of her speech, you know, she was dismissed. And the next day, another member of that legislature who, is a lady who is a staunch Republican. In fact, I think she was one of the authors of the bill. She gave a speech on the floor, um, dismissing the the trans woman's claims, um, and told her. Well, she framed it as her story, but I I I think it more of her as her child's story. And this Republican lady went on to talk about how she has a, and she referred to her as a daughter. And I say this assuming that this this now adult child was assigned female at birth and that the 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 congresswoman was misgendering her because she does not support positive trans identity and she talked about how her daughter in quotes was trans and how she wanted to transition and the mother would not let her transition and the the child had severe suicidal uh, ideologies and tendencies because of it, um, and the, the woman went on to say, "Well, well, I knew that the suicidal thing wasn't real because she didn't go go through with it, so she didn't really mean it, and I think it was just a way to get attention." But then she went on this, and someone asked her, "It's like, well, doesn't it doesn't it bother you that your own child was suicidal because of your actions?" She said, "No, I would rather she have died." Than have let her transition. And you know, that, that hit me really hard. Um, I too grew up with parents whose uh, priorities were not my well being. And I cannot, again, I cannot identify fully with what this, this uh, person was going through as a child. Um, but um, I am proud of them and that they survived this ordeal. They have now, as an adult, they have transitioned. I don't know what gender they identify with now. I don't know if they identify as male or if they're non or if they identify as non-binary. So I'm just to be safe. I'm going to refer to this person as as they them. But I'm very proud of them for having survived this and and having made it through. And that is the kind of hope that I think of. Maybe things aren't ever going to be okay, but. I'm not going to let these circumstances get the better of me. And this is the second time I'm actually recording this segment. Um, The first time I did it, um, I would say I got a little too personal and a little too too, um, more emotional than I am now. Um, And that wasn't what I want to give because it did come across as negative. And I want to, I want this to be a positive thing. And I had trouble, I had struggled to kind of identify my feelings about this. So what I'm going to do instead, there's two songs that I think of um, when I think of holding on emotionally and overcoming adversity by not giving into it. And one of those is by Evanescence. I have been an Evanescence fan since their first album came out in two thousand three. Um, it <laughs> they are a they are not the usual kind of band. I usually listen to metal. I don't consider them metal. I kind of consider them more like symphonic rock, but I like them a lot, and I like their lead singer Amy Lee a lot. And they have a song called "Broken Pieces Shine," and. I want to kind of recite some, I'm not going to try to sing them, don't worry, but the lyrics of the song are very meaningful to me. I actually actually have to listen to the song about 10 times before I talked about this, or I will, you know, crack up, um, not in in a laughing kind of way, but um, I will tear up and my voice will will crack. Um, But the parts of the song that I like is, survival hurts, but I'm not giving in. I'm alive, I'm not fine, and I don't know if I will be alright, but I have to try, and I know you're with me, so what if we do fall apart, shamelessly be who we are, and let all the broken pieces shine? That is very powerful to me. Um, I don't think of myself as a victim of childhood trauma. I think of myself as a survivor of childhood trauma. And, um, I'm not going to go into the details. Um, uh, a lot of people have been through a lot worse than I have. Most of mine was just emotional trauma, nothing, nothing severely physical. Um, but recognizing, and again, that goes back to the importance of being honest, recognizing that you, you're not 100% okay. You might not ever be. But knowing that you're going to make the most of who you are in your life, in the life that you've built, and moving forward from that place in a positive way is very important and very powerful to me. The second song is by the band A Sound of Thunder, which you may or may not have heard of. They are an indie metal band. I love them a lot. I've been a huge fan of theirs since 2015. Um, I am Twitter Mutuals with uh, the lead singer of the band, Nina Asaguera. And um, the song that I want to talk about is the song that I use as the theme song for this show. And I'm very proud that I get to use this song because I don't use licensed music without permission. That's why I don't use the Superman theme. Um, I could pay for the rights to use it, but I don't. But I like the idea of supporting um indie bands for one. And if I can ask permission and if I can get it, that's a big deal to me. And Nina was very gracious enough to give me the the permission to use the song as the theme for my show when I explained to her how how the theme of the song matches the theme of the show. Like thematically, not like theme music wise, but it thematically it matches the show. And um if you're new to the show, you might, you might think, well, that's, a, that's an unusual song for a Superman podcast. Because I don't associate Superman with metal outside of you know, Dark Knight's Death Metal, where, where uh, Superman looks like Nathan Explosion from, uh, from Metalocalypse. But um, this song is also about overcoming anxiety, overcoming depression, overcoming trauma and moving forward. If you're, again, if you're new to the show and you haven't gone back and listened to the back catalog where I talked about it probably a year ago, that might be odd to you. So I thought it was time to kind of re-up it. And I think it fits nicely into the theme of this segment. And the song goes, brace yourself against the agony, battle through the pain, use the will to survive. You will rise again. Don't surrender to the fear. You have much to defend. Bear your fists. Challenge fate. Fight until the end. And with that, let's go talk about some comic books. All right. Superman number 26 is cover dated July 5th. 2017. Again, this is a fill-in issue. It's written by Michael Morrissey. Um, M-O-R-E-C-I. Not not I go home and you cry and you want to die, Morrissey. I'm not familiar with their work. Um, Scott Godlewski is the artist. Uh, Godlewski will go on to um, take part in the, the Superman Heroes and Superman Villains one-shot anthologies. That uh, came out as part as uh, Superman revealing his secret identity that we will get to later on down the line. Uh, he also contributed to the first few issues of uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson's run on Action Comics. Covers are done. Uh, colors are done by Hi-Fi. Rob Lee's the letterer. Lee Weeks and Brad Anderson did the main cover, and Jorge Jimenez and Alejandro Sanchez, my one of my favorite art teams, did the variant. Now the, the main cover is good. It is of John in his Superboy costume with his arms folded across his chest and and looking at the reader with a smirk of determination on his face. Superman is standing behind him in his costume. He has his hands resting supportedly on John's shoulders. There's a, sm- a proud smile on his face, but the top half of his face is obscured by the Superman logo. So even though Clark takes up more real estate on the cover, um, it lets you know that John is the real focus of this. And and John is the way he's inked and colored is inked more distinctly than Clark is. It's like Clark is very much a part of the background and John is very much the, the focus of the cover. Now the variant is one I want to give a lot of time to talk about. Um, and much like the Fortress segment, this is the second time I'm recording talking about this one, because I really went off the rails talking about this one the first time I recorded it. And if you think to yourself, wow, Grant, that's a lot when we get talking about this one, know that this is the toned-down version. So again, this is by Jimenez and, and Sanchez, and it is an homage to a Golden Age cover, uh, that was originally done by Fred Ray, and it is of Superman in his modern day costume, standing with his right right fist on his hip, his left arm his left arm outstretched. There is a bald eagle with its wings stretched, resting on his arm. Uh, Superman has his head cocked slightly away from the eagle. There's a smile on his face. The background is all black, except for a, okay, think of Captain America's original triangular shield, and that is what is behind Superman. And again, this is an homage to a Golden Age cover. It's very good. It's an extremely well-done cover. And when I first saw this a couple years ago, when I was reading this run for the first time, and when I saw it again, when I was prepping for this episode. It took me back a little bit because of the timing of it. And again, this is July of 2017. So this is halfway through the first year of the previous presidential administration, a time where where toxic nationalism was on the rise, where jingoism was on the rise. Um, and for a while now, things like bald eagles and freedom and st- Stuff like that, and patriotism has been co-opted by the far right. And the timing of the cover felt off to me. Initially, it felt like DC having Jimenez do this cover as a way of kind of pandering to the right and saying, "Look, you know, look, we're Superman's not woke. Don't worry, guys. You know, we're still rah-rah USA." But I choose not to think of it like that. I don't know what DC's intentions are. But here's my intention of how I choose to interpret this cover. Like I said, um, things about patriotism, the American flag, bald eagles, freedom, all that's been co-opted by people who have come up with their own way of interpreting those things. Where the only version that they consider acceptable It would take us back to the way things were done in the 1950s, where only straight white Christian men have really any rights and any say-so in how the government's run. And I don't think that's how it should be. Yes, they've taken it. I think we should take it back. I think the American flag is very nice. I love bald eagles. We have one in our neighborhood. I get excited when I see it fly around. I don't, I am, I do not support many, many things that our country has done since its inception. But I think the potential is there for tremendous good. And I would like, I'm not an uber patriot. I am, I am not a person who goes out and waves the American flag back and forth but I would like to be able to think of myself as being patriotic. And that is hard to do right now. But if we take what those things back from people who have subverted them and made them into something toxic and make it into something positive again, then those things can be ours. So that's how I'm interpreting this. I'm interpreting this as This is Superman, the paragon of goodness, taking these things back from people who have twisted these things that should be good and made them into something bad and bringing it back into a place where those of us who believe in equity, who believe in equality, who believe that freedom means The right to do what you, how you would like to live your life as long as it doesn't hurt others. And the freedom to live live your life without being hurt by others. That's what freedom should mean. So that is how I choose to interpret this cover. And that is why I'm using it as the thumbnail for this episode. Um, so we open with a flashback to young Clark waking up in his bed on the Kent farm by Pa telling him that Clark gets to run the farm all by himself today. So go downstairs and this actually answers a question that I raised in the last episode. What do they, what do they farm on the Kent farm? Well, here we see that they raise wheat and it still doesn't answer what they raise on the modern day Kent farm in Hamilton County, but At least on the, at least on Jonathan and Martha Kent's farm, they farmed wheat. And John Jonathan is telling young Clark, well, here's the thresher. Here's how you use it. You're old enough. I've shown you how to run it before. You're old enough to do it. It's a little temperamental, but don't go too fast. It'll be fine. You can't use your powers. And Clark's like, what? And Jonathan's like, look, if you're going to do this right, you cannot use your powers. And Clark's thinking, well, just wait until you're out of eye shot and earshot and I'm going to show you. And we flash to the future and Clark is telling Lois how he is tro- having trouble steering young John in the right direction about how Clark tries to train him and everything that Clark tells him. John thinks he knows better and he just won't listen. And we see where they're fighting these robot drones. And Clark is trying to tell John how to take them out, but John's like, Yeah, 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 I, I see their power source. All I gotta do is open the chest plate and then I can I can destroy all the robots. And uh and Clark is thinking to himself, he wants to do more, and I understand where he's coming from, but he has to learn how to use his powers in smarter ways. Right now he's just a hammer bashing everything he sees as a nail. And um, they take out all the, all the drones and they find like kind of the master control robot. They like, one of them is, is still a robot itself, but someone is controlling this robot and that robot is controlling all the others. But John's like, ha, I see the one, I see the one controlling all the others. I'm going to smash it. And Clark's like, no, 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 stop. But before he can, John smashes the controller robot. And Clark's like, well, great. I was going to use it to find out who was controlling it. And then we can maybe get to the bottom of all this. And John's like, why are you always telling me what to do? Nothing I do is right. You say stop the bad guys. I stopped the bad guys. You said protect the people. I protected the people. What's the big deal? And this is kind of reminiscent of what um, it felt like they were building up to before the Tom Taylor Son of kal series after John eventually gets aged up in John's future state book, we, in that book, Clark is off planet or he's dead. They don't expressly say why. And John has taken over as the Superman of Metropolis and he's gone just too far. He's done something. Um, I don't remember what it is, but the pe- he, the people of Metropolis are safe. But whatever John is just a bridge too far and the people of Metropolis don't trust John at this point. And it's, it's supposed to be like an, possible alternate future that never actually comes to pass, but things come kind of close to it. Um, and it feels like this is what they were kind of leaning toward. Uh, and I know it's a different writer. That was, I think that was Johnson. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is uh, basically a, filler, a fill-in. But it does, I wonder if this is kind of where they took inspiration from, this, this idea of John, who's a little too headstrong, who just won't listen. And so Clark takes a lesson from Pa, and he says, all right, John, you know what? Today, we're going to go on patrol. I'm going to be, I'm going to hold back. You're going to be Superman for the day. And John's like, and he thought John would be kind of intimidated by this. He would be overwhelmed, but he finds John doing one-arm push-ups, which Damian has inspired him to start doing, um... I gotta tell you, when I was when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I couldn't do, I still can't do one arm push ups. I could barely do two arm push ups when I was that age, so, but I also didn't have superpowers. But Clark's like, uh oh, he wasn't expecting John to be like, heck yeah, I'm Superman. And so they show a scene where, uh, John rescued a mother and her baby from a burning building, but he ended up knocking it on a load bearing wall in the process. And, um, John, uh, later on, they're going to stop a train, and John goes to stop the train. And Clark is honestly—he's kind of micromanaging him. He's like, "Hey, don't forget—if you, you know, if you slow the train down too fast, you know, the middle cars are going to buckle." And John's like, "I know." Um, and you know, Clark even says, "Good job," but next time I would. And um, and that's when they hear you know something about no weight help, and they have to go rushing back to Hamilton County. So we see that not only is John not listening, Clark is being a little too, uh, I've already said micromanaging. And that, not necessarily, but I would say he's being a little too critical. They, They don't have a happy medium in their training method. So later in the flashback, young Clark has waited until Pa is nowhere to be seen, and he uses his flight and his super speed to harvest all the wheat He gathers it in one big pile, and I'll be honest, I don't know anything about wheat farming, but they show where the wheat stalks have all been damaged, which apparently damaged the whole crop, and Clark is very, very upset. He's ruined the entire batch of wheat that he's harvested. He hasn't harvested the whole field, but he's made one big pile, and he's made one big swath through the wheat field. And John's like, look, we have to talk. Or Jonathan, I should say, for clarification. So jumping back to the present, we see that the people controlling the robots are two old foes of Superman's Dreadnought and Siphon, um, which I don't think we've seen since before the Triangle era, which is crazy. I think they were in the very, very early 90s. We have a big, strong guy who can also cancel out people's powers and a little guy that as his name would imply has psionic abilities and Clark's like look these are old foes of mine I know how to stop them you need to let me take point on this and John's like nope you said I could be Superman you need to stick to your word I know what I'm doing and John rushes off uh before he gets anywhere close to him uh Dreadnought cancels out John's powers uh, punches him, sends him flying. Apparently he didn't cancel all of John's powers because John didn't die from that punch and from smashing into a building. But John is a little freaked out because this is very similar to what happened recently with Manchester Black. It's what happened recently with his friend, Kathy, who telekinetically canceled out John's powers as well. And Clark says, look, you slow down a little bit. I'll give you a little more leeway. Let's work together. And John cracks his knuckles and says, yeah, let's go show these jerks what happens when they mess with our hometown. And they team up. And sure enough, uh, Superman grabs Dreadnought and flies him up into space and says, oh, no, your tricks don't work on me. I don't know why that would be the case. Um, I have not read the issues from the early 90s with Dreadnought and Siphon for a long time, well, not long time, but a couple years. Long enough, that I don't remember all the details. And John punches out Siphon. Um, I don't know why this worked, but it did. It was fine. We're just going to roll with it. Um, Siphon gets in his ship, and he flies off into space. Uh, like I said, Clark just throws Dreadnought into space. Dreadnought's a big, super tough guy. He'll be fine. Um, one thing I did think was funny is that Clark says, "Now let this be a lesson for what happens when you miss with Earth. Remember it. I don't want to have this conversation again." I like that. I like the whole "I don't want to talk about this again" kind of thing. It's very fun. Um, it's like um, like the movie The Bodyguard after he gets you know one of the other bodyguards gets mad at him and Kevin Costner like throws a knife that like barely misses the guy's head and says, "I don't want to have this conversation again." I thought that was pretty fun. Um, so they go clean up the drones and, um, they talk about, um, you know, Clark is saying, um, that me letting you use your powers in your way shouldn't be unusual. You know, John, John, is saying how, how weird it was for them to work together like that. And Clark says, we've gone through a lot lately and I have to trust you'll find your own way. And believe it or not, Pa and me had the same problem we've been having. And we go back to the flashback where young Clark is very upset. Jonathan is trying to calm him down and said, look, yeah, I'm upset at you because you didn't listen, but I'm also upset at myself because I didn't appreciate who you are and how we could do things your way, just a better way of doing things your way. And... Uh, Flashing back to the present, John says, Pa was pretty awesome, wasn't he? And Clark says, yeah, he was. And I have a lot to learn from him. But you know what? There's no one else in the world I'd rather learn with. And they're sitting on the roof of the house. And Clark reaches over and gives John a hug. And it's very nice. Um, Like I said, very... For a fill-in issue, this is really good. Because a lot of times when you have a fill-in, it doesn't really take into account what the overall thematic arc of the series has been, if there has been one. You know, sometimes it sometimes be like, okay, well, there's, there's a break in, in story arc A, before we go into story arc B, we're gonna have this little one or two piece adventure in the meantime that has nothing to do with anything. This, the, the details of the adventure don't have anything to do with anything that's come before in the series or anything that's gone on, but the theme is the same of John Learning and growing and learning to use his power better, learning to use his powers better, and Clark learning to be a better mentor for his son. So, not a very in-depth uh, discussion of the issue for all that. Uh, it's not an issue that set me off on tangents like I'm often want to do. Um, but, you know, not my favorite issue Uh, By far of the series so far, but you know still very solid issue, especially like I said For a fill-in so i'm gonna go take a quick break um again The show is now ad-free so i'm not going to write an ad in this spot But I would like to remind you that now that the show is ad-free the show does rely on your support more than ever I'll be going over all the patreon details at the end of the episode I'd love it if you could stick around for that and consider subscribing to the Patreon if you have the time and opportunity to do so. But again, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll come right back, and we'll talk about New Superman number 13. Okay, up next is New Superman number 13, and this is part of the Zero ultimatum story arc. It's always a fun challenge find find the credits in this series. But this time, they're right up front. Uh, this is written by Jean Luen Yang, uh, one of my favorite writers of the modern era. It's penciled by Billy Tan. Inks are by Haining, um, with single name only. Colors by Gadson. I have a feeling these aren't single name creators. It's just the, the credits department you know, squished their names for, for to make him fit, uh, letters, letters are by Dave Sharp. The main cover is by Philip Tan and Elmer Santos, and the variant is by Bernard Chang. And the main cover is of Kenan in his new Superman outfit, but with his eyes glowing red and a demonic look upon his face, sitting on a golden throne with several heroes at his feet. Uh, we see Batman is the most prominent, and Kenan is holding Batman's head like he's about to snap his neck. Lying on the ground in front of Batman is Harley, and um, I'm blanking on the name, uh, one of the Green Lanterns. I'm sorry, I will come back to it in just a second. We have the what looks like the Flash in the background behind him, and um, the new Batman of China. All we see is his arm and gauntlet. And that Green Lantern is, of course, Simon Boz. Uh, very cool cover. Oh, by the way, uh, behind uh, the throne that Kennen is sitting on is the ghostly image of what may or may not be his uh, martial arts instructor, Yi Ching. The variant is of Kenan grabbing a car as it's falling off a bridge with one hand and then catching the... The frozen yogurt or ice cream cup that has fallen out of the car with his other hand, where Cannon is making a like tongue sticking out of the side of the mouth, yummy, yummy face. Very fun, very silly cover. Um, I do like the, the main one better this time. Um, Chang's covers have been just spectacular though on this series. They're they're always very silly and very fun. Now always, if you are new to the show, if this is your first episode, I highly recommend you rewind at least a few episodes to the beginning of this story arc, if not further to the beginning of the series. But again, if this is your new, if you are new to the show, if this is your first episode, I'm going to do my best to get you caught up. So when Superman, the main Superman, um, Gave off like a solar flare burst at some indeterminate comic book time ago. That energy was captured by the mysterious Doctor Omen of China's Ministry of Self Reliance, and she used and she used that energy to give a young man from China, Kong Cannon, Superman-like powers, and teamed him with a Justice League of China. At the beginning of the series, Kenan believed that his mother had died in a plane crash, and he believed that his father was a simple mechanic who was writing, kind of a subversive underground uh, like blog. Uh, we later found out that his mother had once been the leader of a group of superhuman terrorists. I forget what her code name was, but she had this very cool like sword themed swashbuckler outfit, and his dad was the co-leader, uh, I shouldn't say super-powered, but um, uh, technologically enhanced terrorists, costume terrorists. Her dad, uh, Kenan's dad, was the co-leader of this group. He went by the name of Flying Dragon General. Um, and Kenan ended up going up against this this group that called themselves the Freedom Fighters. He believed, and Kenan believes that his dad died in the final confrontation with the Freedom Fighters. We, as the reader, know that Kenan's dad is not dead and that he's been kept in a, like, what I think of as a Bacta tank from Star Wars, the, the big vertical tank filled with liquid that helps you heal faster, and that Dr. Omen has referred to Kenan's dad in the tube as my love. And last issue, while fighting uh, Superman Zero, who is Kenan's predecessor in this government program, uh, Dr. Omen fell out of the top of the building, Kenan went to go grab her, and Dr. Omen said, you idiot, I'm your mother, which confirmed has confirmed my suspicion from a few issues ago, which gets us caught up to where we are now. So, Dr. Omen, she falls from the top of this tower, which has been attacked by Superman Zero, now calling himself Emperor Superman. Kenan goes to grab her, but she is grabbed by Emperor Superman first. And Emperor Superman wears this awesome costume that is very kind of ancient Chinese warlord inspired. He has this helmet that has this big old dragon on it and the S on his chest. Is made up of a golden, legless dragon. It's very cool. It has these big shoulder plates with gold trim on them and uh, red bracers. It's very, very sharp-looking costume. Um, so Kenan, he Kenan's powers are kept in check by his emotions, or I should say, they're empowered by his emotions. When he can control his thoughts, when he can control his emotions, when he can move his chi intentionally to different parts of his body, um, then he's able to activate his powers. He cannot fly yet, but the invulnerability power saves him from crashing into the ground. And, but as he climbs out of the rubble, he says his invulnerability is failing um Kenan shouts at Emperor Superman to stop Emperor Superman hits him with a blast of cold breath which freezes Kenan on the spot the Flash of China Avery Ho runs up and she punches the ice to break him free and Kenan says you know he he, he flew off with um uh Emperor Superman flew off with Dr Omen he doesn't tell anybody what Dr Omen said yet but he needs to find her, he needs to talk to her, he needs answers, and um, with Avery, again, is Kenan's, um, um, not exactly martial arts instructor, but his, I would say his Tai Chi instructor, Yi Ching, who's teaching Kenan to control the flow of his chi, and um, uh, by... Kennan says that Baishi, the Batman of China, showed him a video of Kennan's father still alive in this back-to-tube in a secret laboratory in the Loess Plateau, and it's L-O-E-S-S. Again, with with all the with all the things in this book that have, have Chinese names, I apologize if I'm saying them wrong. Um, one of these days, I should probably do my research a little better and probably maybe look them up on YouTube and see their how, like how they're actually pronounced. I promise I will be better in the future. And so with that knowledge, Kenan activates his super speed and he runs off to the lowest plateau, which is in the, Shang- the Shang-Chi province. Um, Avery holding I Ching catches up to him a moment later, but when Kenan arrives, the tube has already been smashed and his father is missing. So Uh, Kenan's like, look, I got to track him down. I got to track down Dr. Omen. I got to track down my dad. But Avery says, look, we are the Justice League of China. We have a bigger crisis right now. Uh, Superman Zero is trying to take over the entire country. He is priority number one. And um, Kenan's like, I know, but it doesn't make any sense. Dr. Omen said, she said she's my mom. How could she say something like that? My mom's dead. Now, I don't think we've been shown how old Kenan was when he believed his mother died. But I think he was old enough to remember her. But it could be that he's young enough that the memory of her face has faded. But that's not to say that Kenan's dad probably wouldn't have photographs laying around. So I would assume that if Dr. Omen really is Kenan's mom, then she's had her facial structure change to look different. Um, and while Kenan is, is really upset, he's lashing out. I Ching tells him, to face the chaos around us, we must first face the chaos Then, And he puts his fingers on Kenan's forehead, and he does a trick that he's done a few times in the past. He takes them at least psychically, to what is called in-between what is and what is not. So I'm interpreting this as like the psychic astral plane. And uh, it's this big, big, white, empty space. Kind of think about like the, the sub-area of the Matrix where, where Morpheus keeps all the weapons and stuff. Great, great, big, wide, empty room. But instead of like rows upon rows upon endless rows of guns, Behind them is this big kind of green scribble. And um, I ching points it out and says, we are surrounded by scribbles, but um, but I need you to read them. And so Kenan's like, I, I don't know how, but let me take a look. And Kenan says, they're words. And uh, Yi-Ching says, yes, they, are, they, are, they describe possible actions. So as Kenan looks at the words and he discusses it with I Ching. I Ching, points out that they are the scribble is changing, and it it's changing into Chinese characters, which I do not have the ability to read, but I Ching tells us that they are laying out the choices of, should you find your missing father, or rescue the woman who claims to be your mother, or fight the self-proclaimed Emperor Superman, or quell the streets of Shanghai? And uh, Kenan's like, well, that's the problem, I have to do it all, and I Ching says, yes, But which is first? Be still, be mindful, and read. And the characters um, solidify to the word for lead. And I Ching tells them it is time to step up and be the leader of the Justice League of China. And we see now that on the ground near them are a series of octagons that have the symbols of the different Justice League members. We have a kind of purple-pink octagon with a yellow lightning bolt representing Avery. We have a red octagon with three yellow um, parallel lines that represent Baishi's Robin bot, which I think is really funny that it's not the R for Robin, but it's supposed to represent the, the ties that held the original Robin's tunic closed. I think that's really funny. We have a blue octagon with the yellow Batman symbol in it. And we have a green octagon with the yellow Wonder Woman symbol in it. And then we have another octagon off in the background that's directly under the characters that symbolize Lead. We can't see what's in it. I don't know if that is supposed to be a character that we haven't met yet or if that is supposed to symbolize the Justice League as a whole. So from there, we go... To the Fortress of Sovereignty, formerly the Shanghai Tower in Shanghai, and Superman Zero has Dr. Omen tied to a chair, um, and he wants Dr. Omen to release all the metahuman or technologically advanced prisoners of the Crab Shell, which is an underwater prison that the Chinese government uses to house such individuals. And uh, Dr. Omen tells him, you'll have to do better than that. To those who have gotten an up-close look at death, death, it doesn't inspire them much. And this figure, who looks like a ghostly but cartoonish version of, of I Ching, is standing nearby, and he has become Superman Zero's mentor. And he said several times, this isn't what I look like. This is just how I choose to present myself. He refers to Dr. Omen as Superman Zero's mother. And I'm assuming that Superman Zero's body is lab-grown. Because we talked in the last issue of the series about how he doesn't have any other identity beyond Superman Zero. Um, It might be that he was, you know, it could be that he's someone that has amnesia or has had their mind wiped. Or someone that was, you know, has been... uh, well, I don't want to use the word groom because that has such a gross connotation to it now, but someone that's been brought up for, for this since early childhood and doesn't remember their parents or any other life. But, uh, Superman Zero goes on to talk about how Dr. Omen kept him caged like an animal. Um, Dr. Omen says you're nothing but a, but an experiment and a prototype for the Superman of China. And, um, and again, um, this ghostly figure says, you know, says, I'm, I'm not really I Ching. You can see why uh, I can see why you call me that. Shadows often retain their original shape. Um, and I Ching says, you possess a strength that allows you to withstand intense pain unto death. It is a strength that is, you pass on to your two sons. Uh, it's why you were able to infuse them with the powers of the American alien, referring, of course, to Superman. Um, but he says, unlike this son of yours, you have a lived a human life with human attachments. Allow me to bring in our other guest. And we see that Kenan's dad has been been stolen from within the healing tank by the China White Triad. And that is a group of mercenaries led by a woman named China White. She has a strong guy, uh, co-conspirator by the name of Snake Pit. And another character who can turn himself into, into like sentient fog called the Cloud Man. And they have taken Kenan's dad and put him in a small box with the, with the kind of healing fluid just barely below his mouth. And he's not attached to any kind of breathing apparatus, so he's very close to drowning. And, um, and they are going to use him as leverage against Dr. Omen. And, uh, and the, this parody of Yi Ching says, Surely a woman of your accomplishment is well versed in history. Do you recall how the Duke of Lu reacted when a man insulted him? He had the man boiled alive. You have insulted no mere duke but your emperor. And uh, Superman Zero then begins to use his heat vision to heat up the liquid that Kenan's dad is trapped in, and we leave this scene with Dr. Omen just looking pensively, like she's very unsure what to do, but the next page is a double splash of all these super-powered or enhanced individuals that were kept in the crab shell climbing up onto land, and some of them are awesome. You have a guy who looks like Bane, only has a kind of a Chinese theme to his look. You have Kind of a silvery robot. You have Blue Condor, who is a cyborg that we've seen previously. Uh, we have a guy named Folding Paper Man, who's kind of like Plastic Man, only can turn his body. He can change the the like width of his body to be like super blade thin, and can contort himself. Um, you have a lady who looks like a ghostly version of the villain Kronos. We have a guy front and center who looks. Like a very stereotypical Chinese warlord. And what's insane about his costume is that his nipples are pierced. And he has chains going from his nipples to his belt. And that upsets me to no end. I hope this guy has, is super invulnerable. Because, man, one swipe and that guy's down for the count. Uh, we have a, a guy in the background who's green. He has kind of an aquatic theme, but he has a very kind of Asian demon look about him. We have a, a techno villain called Sunbeam who uses you know technology to do you know, light and heat things. Um, when we last saw, saw Sunbeam, they were a woman, and this looks like a man with the same costume and technology. We have, I forget what her name is, it's Ghost Something. She has a, a gun that shoots these... These things that kind of look like Pac-Man ghosts. I don't know what they de- what they do. Um, you have a very stereotypical looking demon behind her. And then you have this lady up front. Who kind of sort of looks like a cross between Poison Ivy and Groot. She's got green skin. And long black hair. And glowing red eyes. And her hands are made out of wood. And they have these very long branch like fingers. And then from the, from the wood of the hands, they kind of go back to this leaf-like thing around the cuffs of her, of her forearms. And then from there, you have like this flower-like red covering that goes all the way up to her shoulders. It's a cool design. I have no idea. From the look on her face, I have no idea, no doubt that she's a diabolical villain, but she is a fantastic design. And we see that Lucy, uh, not Lucy Lou. Le, uh, Lacey Lunn is uh, who is kind of the the lowest counterpart uh, here in Shanghai is reporting all this. Um, bai Shi, the Batman of China, is rescuing people, and he is confronted by this big guy that lo- that looks like Bane, but again, he has kind of a Asian theme to his mask. And he picks up a truck and he throws it at Bai Shi. And uh, Baishi throws uh, like a shuriken at him, which cuts the mask. And it's revealed to be Baishi's rival from the Batman Academy, Rong Pei, who had tried to kill uh, Baishi recently to take the mantle of the Batman of China. And he was imprisoned in the crab shell. And there he got hold of a health supplement from America called Venom. It completely changed my life. He punches Baishi, sends him flying. Uh, Rongpei now says his name is Anathema, which is a great name. I have wanted to come up with a villainous character called Anathema for a long, long time. I Probably still will. um, But, you know, I like it's a a good kind of synonym for Bane. He picks Baishi up over his head like he's going to do the Bane Batman back snap. He says, I could kill you, lard bucket but death, would only injure agony and silence your shame. Instead, I will, but before he can do anything, Kenan runs out of nowhere, punches him and says, get punched in the face, which is great. And then Pay falls down and Kenan says, and then whimper quietly in the corner. Ha ha. So he picks Mai Shi up and um, the two of them regroup. Uh, Avery comes running with Yi Ching on her back and, uh, coming out of nowhere is Robin bot. And, um, and, uh, Cannon says he was able to find Robin bot pretty quickly. And then Robin bot did some techno babble to track down, to track down by before they can do anything. There is a hurricane force wind and, Uh, Yi Ching says someone has created a wind tunnel to serve as an uh, amplifier, and we see that standing on top of the what is this tower called again? I'm sorry, I gotta rewind. The Fortress of Sovereignty, formerly the Shanghai Tower. So, uh, so standing on top of the Fortress of Sovereignty is Emperor Superman and ghostly not Yi Ching and the Turner White Triad. And uh, he he says, for you are the capital of a new reign, the reign of Emperor Superman. At this very moment, newly freed metahuman rebels wander the streets of the city. Listen to me, metahumans. It was I who freed you from your unjust prison. I freed you because you are the soldiers of an army under my command, a new imperial army. We see a, a new guy who has like a Van Dyke facial hair thing, he's got the little pointy beard and then he's got the swooshy mustache and he has a helmet that's shaped like a bullet. I don't know what his deal is, but that's a fun costume design in a very Silver Age kind of way. Emperor Superman goes on to say, so come my soldiers, gather to my command, join me in my fortress of sovereignty. Together we will subdue this realm and restore order. Um, And Kenan points out that um, that Superman Zero has gotten so powerful, he's making the whole sky glow yellow, and I Ching says the light isn't from Emperor Superman, Kenan, but from the power behind the power, and Kenan says, who are you talking about, and I Ching says, first things first, so we do not have the mystery of who not I Ching really is. Uh, Kenan turns to Batman and says that we need to go get Deilan, the Wonder Woman of China, in the last few issues, we learned that Daylon is actually a mythical snake from a different plane of reality who used her chi to take on human form. She was attacked by a wizard from that realm who basically cut her in half and waist down. And um, she grew a snake tail and then she got more damaged and turned back into a giant white snake. And Bai Xi had had some feelings for Daylon up to that point. He is very standoffish about her now. But he agrees they do need to get the Ying all together. And Bai Xi says, looks like you're the lead on this one, new Superman. And Kenan says, finally, let's move out Justice League of China as they all take off to go rescue Daylon. And that is where the issue ends. This series is always a ton of fun, and this issue is no exception. I really, really like Billy Tan's art. Billy Tan's art. I always love Gene Yang's storytelling. Uh, hands down, one of my top five writers of comic books right now. Um, and I've said it before, between this, between his relatively short run on Batman Superman, um, between his work on Monkey Prince, um, um, Superman Smashes the Clan, his work on Shang-Chi over in Marvel. He is just doing amazing stuff, and I always look forward to reading more of things that he has done. But that is the end of this issue. Um, I am not reading ahead on this one because I want it to be a surprise. Um, I, I'm interested to see who this not Yi Ching really is. I, Want to see what's going to happen between Baishi and Deilan. Again, that's the Batman and the Wonder Woman of China. Um, I really want to know if Dr. Omen actually is Kenan's mom. It seems like she is, but you never know. So uh, I'll just have to keep reading when it comes up in the rotation. And if you guys don't already know, you'll just have to stay tuned. But I'm going to take another really quick break and I'll be right back and we'll talk about Dark Days, the casting. Alrighty, Dark Days the Casting is the second prelude issue building up to Dark Knight's Metal. Like I said earlier, Superman is not in this issue. Plan A is to do kind of a skimming overview of this issue just to keep up with what's going on. But it is really well written and really interesting, so I can't say how well I will be able to stick to this plan. Um, but let me go over the credits here. There's, there are a lot. Um, I don't know if I can find them, honestly. No, 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 no. Um, man, I don't even see them in the thing. Uh, well, I'll just tell you what the app says about them. Um, it is written by Scott Snyder and James. I've always said Tinian, but I've heard people say Tinian, so I don't know. Uh, they're a fantastic writing combo, and I'll get to talk about more about them as a writing combo in the near future. Pencils are by Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, and John Romita Jr. Inks are by Klaus Janssen and Danny Mickey. I suspect that Janssen is the inker on most of Romita's uh, pencils. Um, I don't have credits right here for Colors and Letters. Um, but there are several variant color covers. There's one by Alex Sinclair, one by Jim Lee, one by Scott Williams. Um, and the cover date on this one is July 12th of 2017. Um, I don't know what counts as the main cover on these cause there were a bunch of variants, but the main definitely by Jim Lee is, uh, Batman, the Joker, Duke Thomas, and, Hal Jordan, all in the back cave, standing in front of some kind of machine as with like like green lantern is powering part of the machine. It looks like it's projecting something. I think it's supposed to be projecting a portal, and they're all looking into what's in the portal and it's a well done cover. Jim Lee style on it is just not to my taste. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think maybe his work on new fifty two left, uh, like, Justice League left a bad taste in my mouth, I don't know, I just, I'm just not a Jim Lee fan, um, we have the, the Andy Kubert cover, which is pretty good, um, it's got Batman and Wonder Woman, and they are in the fiery pits of something that we'll find out soon, Diana is twirling the lasso over her head, and she looks great, Batman looks a little weird, um, as much as I like Kubert Sometimes when he does very straight-on profiles of a character, it makes their face look flat, and that's the case with Batman in this one. And then, the third cover by Ramita Jr. is of the Joker attacking Batman with a crowbar, Batman deflecting it with a like heavy. It's not a battering. It looks like a bat melee weapon. It kind of reminds me, like, there's the all-star Batman that was done in the Rebirth era where Batman looks like he's kind of like a bat crowbar. That's kind of what this looks like. And then Hal Jordan's in the background trying to grab Joker with a clamp made of Green Lantern energy. Joker looks really good. Um, the, like, smashed computer monitors behind Batman look really good, but Batman looks odd and Hal Jordan looks odd. Um, I can't... Tell who did the inks on this one? I don't think it's Jansen. um but yeah. I mean, when it comes to JR JR, it either really works or it really doesn't, and a lot of it depends on the inker. And uh, like I said, Joker looks great in this one, but Batman and, and and the Green Lantern Green Lantern look a little weird. So we open with mono, with like a journal entry by Carter Hall Hawkman, and he's talking about how he's always thought of himself as a detective, no matter what life he's been in, no matter what his career has been, because he's always trying to uncover, like, the secrets of the universe. And we see him walking through a museum with Hawk Girl, and this is supposed to be, I think, in the 1940s. Now, what's interesting about this, and this is how I know this is going to take me longer than 15 minutes to talk about um, as you guys probably know, before Crisis, Carter Hall and Shira Saunders were Hawkman and Hawk Girl of the 19, of the Golden Age, and then of Earth 2, and Katar Hole and Shara Thal were the Hawkman and Hawkwoman of the Silver Age, and the, the... Costumes that Hawkman and Hawk Girl are wearing here are very much the Earth One Hawkman costumes. We have the Earth One Hawkman helmet. We have the Earth One Hawk Woman helmet. The low-cut blouse that Hawk Girl is wearing is it looks like the one the Hawk Woman wore, but after Crisis on Infinite Earths and after the um, the Hawkworld reboot. Uh, Carter, Carter Hall and Shira Sanders became the hawk, hawk peoples all the way through this, uh, were the hawk people of, you know, they'd been a hawk, hawk man and a hawk girl from World War II all the way up to the present age. So it makes sense that they would be put in the, in the costumes of their pre-crisis Earth One counterparts. If you don't know about all that stuff, I'm sorry, continuity is fun. I enjoy it, even though it's complicated. And they, he, his journal goes on to talk about how in their efforts to uncover all of these mysteries, they came across a secret cabal of immortals who, who had been seeking out these mysteries and keeping them safe themselves. Ah, here are the full credits. Uh, Sky, Snyder and Tinian, like I said, Lee, Kubert, and Romita, like I said, Williams, Jansen, and Danny Mickey. Um Alex Sinclair and, and Jeremiah Skipper did the colors and Steve Wands did the letters. Okay, sorry about that. And um these immortals give Carter a magic energy dagger, and it's made out of a unknown powerful metal. And what's another interesting thing about this is one of these immortals is Rachel Ghul. And Raish was not did not consent to the plan to give this dagger to the Hawks and the woman behind him who's talking to him says Al Ghoul, do you see it and Raish says yes Ms. Seward I do I don't know this for sure but Seward is the last name of the doctor from Bram Stoker's Dracula Jack Seward and Jack was in love with uh, Lucy, the the one of the, the one of Dracula's thralls in that book and in the in the, the movie from the early 90s. I wonder if this is supposed to be because I know Lucy marries somebody else. She marries Arthur Holmwood. I've seen that movie a lot. but I want, I have to wonder if this lady is related to Jack Seward. From Dracula in some way, which would explain the immortality angle. I don't know. It could just be random, but it's what it makes me think of. And um, we see that this dagger is just crackling with all this electrical energy. And uh, Hawkman's Journal says the truth would hit us like lightning. Now we go from there to Mathana, Greece, where Batman is in like tactical armor and he's fighting a griffin. But Wonder Woman shows up with a flaming cutlass and drives off the Griffin, which she calls uh, Inf- Infitryon? Infitryon, which is a cool name, and says that Batman is under her protection. All Batman had to do to get entrance to the sacred temple was to ask, and Batman says, I was going to do that next. And um, the, the, the Griffin flies off, and Batman says, look, if this wasn't, really, really important. I would not be doing this, but I need greater perspective. I found some information. I need to know more. I don't know the whole picture. I've got to find out what's going on. And the temple there is is the temple of Hephaestus, the, the god of the forge. And he says that you know, this information he's found out has to do with some kind of otherworldly metal. It's either come from an alien planet or it's come from another dimension or the realm of the gods or something. But he figured if anybody knew anything about unearthly metal, the god of the forge would know. But Wonder Woman says, I'm sorry, you're too late. She pushes open the doors and she says that the gods have abandoned earth. And we see that the temple is abandoned. The forge is abandoned. The, the all the the smelting pit is cool. There's cobwebs all over everything. She says they barred the gates of Olympus behind them. And Batman asks, why would they leave? And Diana says, they believe a war is coming. A war that will not only shape the Earth, but the cosmos themselves. A crisis that will shake the very filament and douse the light of... firmament, excuse me, and douse the light of creation. I can see in your eyes that you saw it coming too. How can you know the thinking of the gods? Now, this... Um, these pages are done by Remita. One thing I always like about Romita is he's never afraid to tinker with costumes. Like Wonder Woman's costume is very different. It's got the, the, the weird choker that she had uh, with her silver, silver and red costume from the, um, from the New 52 era. Uh, she has extra bracers added to her upper arms. Her boots go up over her knees with these like big gold knee pads. It's really sharp. Even if I don't always love Ramita's style, I love his willingness to tinker with design. It reminds me of like in the X-Men era in the early 80s. He would he would except with, with the exception of like Wolverine, he was constantly tinkering with people's costumes and adding things and taking things away. It reminds me of his run on Daredevil, where he completely changed the design of uh, Mephisto. He's, he's a fun artist, even if his style isn't necessarily to my liking. And, um, and Batman says he knows what the gods are thinking because he understands fear. And he's not afraid to admit it, but he is scared right now. And he'd hope that Hephaestus may be able to shine a light into the darkness... And Wonderman says he still may be able to. She takes out this flaming cutlass that she has, and she had a vision from Hephaestus saying to give this sword to Batman. Um, It was forged for Apollo. It's called the Sunblade. It's one of 12 weapons created for each of the Pantheon. And it's made out of what they call eighth metal. Keep in mind that Hawkman's stuff is made out of nth metal nth metal and batman takes the sword and says there's something beginning in the world and i've somehow i found myself at its center as though i can hear a message calling out from the shadows but the more i try to listen the more it sounds like laughter and from there we go to the Batcave, cave and this is where lee takes over the pencils and hal jordan and batman's new protege duke thomas uh, who has a very cool yellow and black costume, are confronting the Joker who they found up locked up in Batman's sub-sub sub basement beneath the Bat cave. and the Joker is behind a energy barrier holding him in this little cell. Um, and when we last saw Joker in continuity, not we here on the show, but comics readers in general, Joker had seemingly died, but Joker and Batman had pretty much killed each other in the Batcave. I don't know the details of exactly how Batman got better. It kind of goes into it here, which we'll talk about more. But um, uh, they, they, Jordan and, and Thomas want to know what's going on. Why does Batman have him prisoner down here? And Joker begins to taunt Duke. And he says, you're not a real Robin. You're, you're not good enough for him to even make you a Robin. He implies that there's a racial factor involved. And apparently, Joker had poisoned Duke's mom with Joker Venom and her Crazy. And so Duke lashes out, tries to get at Joker through the energy barrier, and something about Duke's body starts an energy feedback. Um, um, let's see if I can see what he's saying here. Uh, Sorry. Um, Nope. It doesn't say yet, but it it starts an energy feedback that begins to cancel out the force field. And we see how in a flashback after Batman and Joker killed each other, Joker woke up in what looks a whole lot like a Lazarus pit. It's a pool of greenish fluid underneath the Batcave. And uh, what's it say? Um am tumbling down the darkest deepest corner of the Batcave and splash, I might I missed, I thought I was a goner until I woke up in the dark and the shimmering green metal was running all over me. So what appears to be a Lazarus pit is made up somewhat of metal. And it. he talks about how he had cut his face off during the New 52 era. When he woke up in the Lazarus pit, his wounds from fighting Batman were gone. Uh, his face was back the way it should be. And he says, and towering over it, towering over me, marking on the wall, older than Gotham, older than civilization, the bat behind the bat. And we see this cave drawing, this very Batman-like. It's this long, flowing, tattered cape with a with a bat cowl, but there's like a empty shadow with red glowing eyes where Batman's face would be. The Joker goes on to talk about how people knew there was something going on. He says, the owls knew, that lunatic crazy quilt knew. I have not read enough Batman building up to this. The more I find out about Batman in the modern era, the more fascinated I am. I have not read past, like, the seventh issue of New 52 Batman. I've read the, the, the Court of Owls initial story arc. I've read the, the Mr. Freeze, um, kind of one and done right after it. I've read a little bit of, uh, um, the Tomasi Gleason, Batman and Robin. And I'm working right now on reading the Tinian um, Batman run from 2020, which is really good. Um, but Joker goes on to says, You see, it was all a great conspiracy. The pieces is planted for generations. Birds have become bats. Lights have become dark. Sanity become insanity. And the Joker basically says that He needs to find out what's going on himself, and he's figured it out, and that's when he talks about there's something about Duke Thomas that's interacting weirdly with the force field, and Joker is able to push his way out of the force field just as the lights go out, and, um, the Joker comes at Duke with a knife, um... Hal is able to activate his ring just enough. There's been something in this sub-basement that's interacting with Green Lantern's ring and making that not function properly. But Joker runs off into the shadows for the moment. We go back to Carter Hall's journal. We get another panel of what I was talking about with, uh, with the cover of Batman and Wonder Woman, where sometimes when... Um, when, not Andy Lanning, Andy Kubert, does a close-up of someone's face. He does it from, like, their chin looking up at them, and he makes their face, like, very weird and flat. We get that again here with Carter Hall. Uh, That's my one real complaint about Andy's artwork. Um, And we see how, in their archaeological travels, Carter and Shira had come across a cave, and there was a massive cave painting on it of a demon with big horns and a long hook nose and bat-like wings. And, uh, and he said there were countless paintings like that around the world. There were cave paintings of these fights between clans and how there were three tribes. There was the bird, the bat, and the bear. And members of the bird tribe had broken off. They'd betrayed the rest of the bird tribe and they'd become the bat tribe. And they were the plague bearer, the scourge of mankind. And, um, he talks about how the first life that he can remember, that of him as Penj Khufu back in ancient Egypt, he knows now that wasn't his first life. But what Hath Set, the way Hath Set killed him, cut him off from all of his previous, the memories of his previous lives before Khufu. Um... Let's see. Did they talk more about the dagger? Did I just miss it? No. Okay, that's still coming up. But it's got something to do with, again, the way he was sacrificed, or that uh, Khufu and, and Shaira were sacrificed by Hatset. Um, he goes on to talk about his different lives. Um, it's implied that in one of his lives, Carter founded or was a Blackhawk, Or it could be that he secretly founded them. It also goes on to say how he founded the Challengers of the Unknown. He wasn't one of their members, but he was their, uh, not mentor, but, uh, you know, person who sponsored them, person who gave them missions. He was the person behind the Challengers. And um, at one point, they used the dagger hooked up to science machines to open a portal the challengers went through it. Challenger's Mountain exploded. And what was left in the void was this giant face. This giant inhuman face staring back at them. And it's very Lovecraftian. It's very massive alien consciousness looking upon humans with disdain. Um, and... Uh, Carter says there were eyes waiting in the dark, waiting for something or someone. We go from there back to the present, to the Sonoran Desert. And Batman, still in his, his armor, is using this sunblade to cut his way through a pile of rock into an underground facility. And he's saying, 60 miles from the coast of Greece, the Sunblade began to vibrate in reaction to an unknown source that had led me here to a secret base of unknown origin deep under the Sonoran Desert. And he talks about summoning Black Lightning and the rest of the Outsiders. And that's not something I think gets this, that gets explored after Metal. But a telepathic voice begins speaking to Batman and tells him to turn back. It turns out to be Double X. And if you're a patron, you will know that I've been talking about Double X a lot over there. I don't know what Double X's status was prior to this. I know that in the late 2000s, as part of the New Krypton arc, Double X was assassinated. Um, I don't know if he was part of New 52 or not. I, I have not read the New 52 Superboy series. I've tried it. I'm not fond of it. I know that that has you know to do with cloning and all that but I don't know if that if that has anything to do with Cadmus and I don't know if Double X was actually in it. But Double X says that this is no longer a Cadmus base it was but now it's called the DNA project and it's tracked down beings with it in their blood and they begin to activate them with a the power source they didn't understand and Double X elaborates this. The metal you seek, Batman. It's cursed. Energy is roiling and dark. Everything it touches, it corrupts. See for yourself the damage it has wrought. And he projects a a psychic image of uh, Double X himself and um, guys in armor shooting at a big hulking figure that's coming through a gate. We don't know who that figure is yet, but we will find out later on in Metal. But then Double X, I assume he dies. He either passes out or dies. I assume he's dead. And we see that who defeated him was Talia. And this must be, this has got to be Jansen inking this because Talia looks great. Batman here looks great. Double X looks great. Everything about these pages looks fantastic. This is J.R.J.R. at his peak. I've always been a huge fan of Klaus Janssen as an inker. He's one of my favorite inkers that worked with Sal Buscema back in the early days of the Defenders, and yeah, I mean Mount Rushmore of inkers, hand down. But she said she was there looking for uh, looking for the medal as well. She knows that that the Council of Immortals gave the dagger to Carter Hall back in the day. Her dad did not agree with that decision. He wants the dagger back, so she's come looking for it. And Batman says that he's heard rumblings that Leviathan is moving against you. Now, that is really, really interesting from knowing what's to come in the DC Universe. Event Leviathan would not come about for another couple of years after this and that will be something that is uh, spearheaded by Bendis during his run on Superman. So that tells me either one or two things, that either DC had the Leviathan event pre-planned and gave Bendis the task of fleshing it out, fleshing it out, excuse me, or uh, Bendis was already... Like on deck to come on board to DC. It was an idea that he'd already proposed to them that they green-lighted, and they were planning that out a couple years in advance. Either way, it's really, really fascinating. One way or another, DC knew the, that Event Leviathan was going to happen. It's not an event I'm particularly fond of, but it is noteworthy, and we will at least talk about it when we get to it here on the podcast. And she also says she had, that Bruce has nothing to fear from Silencer, who is a skilled assassin. That's another series that spins out of Death Metal or Dark Dark Knights Metal, excuse me. But um, she says she has the dagger, and Batman says, "Well, I'll offer you trade. I will offer you the eighth medal for the ninth." And he offers to trade her the Sun Sword, which is the weapon of the gods, for this for this ninth. Metal dagger, and again, all the Hawkman metal has been called nth metal at this point. So now we're finding out that nth metal is really the ninth metal, and it's never explicitly stated. But I'm assuming that this is the dagger that was used to assassinate uh, Prince Khufu and and King, yeah, and Princess Sheyara back in ancient Egypt. And because it is of this unique property. That is what severed their memories from their lives before ancient Egypt. And as she hands, as Talia hands the dagger to Batman, we can see that the handle of the dagger is black and it has a gold lightning bolt on it. And Talia says it carries a small piece of his great power, the power of Shazam. So that's really fascinating. I don't think that really gets explored, how Shazam ties into the whole metal thing, but it is an interesting concept. From there, we go back to the sub-basement of the Batcave, where Hal Jordan and Duke Thomas have located the Joker, who has a crowbar, which I would argue is the Joker's signature weapon, his favorite weapon at this point, and he's using it to smash a big science fiction machine. And... In this page, it just looks like a science fiction-y thing. In a few pages, it's going to look like something very Kirby-esque. And the Joker is saying that this machine is what Batman will use to dig deeper into this mystery of the metals. And he can't let that happen because he knows what's going to happen. And it's so bad that even the Joker is afraid of it. So, Hal tries to use his ring to force the Joker away from the machine. His ring backfires. The Joker hits Hal upside the head with the crowbar. Uh, Doesn't kill him. And uh, Duke Thomas tackles the Joker. And the Joker is talking about... He's asking Duke if he wonders why Batman picked him. And the Joker says, did you know at Gotham Mercy Hospital, there's an automatic flag that goes up when something unusual is detected in a blood sample? I'm not even going to try to do a Joker voice. I'm sorry. It's kind of a metal toxicity, but they can't really track any of its effects because it sure as hell isn't iron. It's not even mercury. The first doctor to put up that flag, the program only gave him four characters to designate the flag, but he did the best he could. And I've seen the file... For both you and your mom. M-E-T-A. And Batman's been tracking as many issues as he can for years now, hasn't he? And so Joker takes this second while Duke is distracted to throw the crowbar at his head. It hits him, hits Duke in the helmet, knocks him loose. And Joker says, A whole new generation of superheroes and supervillains. The soldiers of the war that will rip this world apart. Tell the computer to pull up the metaphiles sometime. You can see them all for yourself. People with that crazy metal running through their veins, you've seen what it can do in its other forms. Can you imagine what it does to people? What I'm saying, of course you can. And so, the what is directly implied is that metahumans, or metahuman powers, you, maybe even the metagene, is caused by traces of this metal in people's DNA. And the Joker says... I know the truth, Duke. I know what you are here to do. You'll let him see in the dark. That's all you are, Duke. It's the role you're destined to play. You are the signal. So there is Duke's code name. And the Joker says I can't allow that to happen, so I'm going to have to kill you. He puts a little tiny little shard of like a shiv to Duke's neck. Duke kicks him off. Duke goes rolling down the hill. We switch from Jim Lee's art style to JRJR's. And this is where the machine starts to look very Kirby-esque. And it's been smashed to mostly to bits by the Joker. But as he begins to go to work on the rest of the machine, there's a rumble. And Hal Jordan has gotten a hold of one of Batman's Bat planes. And he talks about how he's a decorated member of the U.S. Air Force. And story time is over. Duke is riding on the wing of the plane. And Joker shouts, no. So from there we go back to um, Carter Hall in his journal. And we see this big mansion off in the distance. And uh, Carter is talking about how he thinks that... If he originally thought that the Thanagarians sent Nth Metal, or what we now understand it to be the Ninth Metal, to Earth to aid humanity. But he's beginning to think that... They sent it there to stop humanity from digging deeper into the secret of the metals. Because if the, the dagger was made out of Ninth Metal and it was used to sever Carter's connection to his past lives before Khufu, then there's something about Ninth Metal that can maybe override all the others. And he talks about how his spies that he's sent to, to hide secrets and dig, dig up secrets have been rooted out and killed and how he gave the book to someone who we aren't, that isn't identified, that's standing in front of this big mansion. And he gave it to this person to hide Carter's journal. Uh, to keep it safe from anyone that might come looking for it. And we see that where Carter had created this big portal. And he's going to go through the portal to, to figure out the secret. And he hopes that if anyone finds the journal that it'll be a warning for them not to follow him into the darkness. So back under the Batcave, um, Hal has initiated this big claw-like device on the front of the bat plane to trap the Joker, and the Joker's like, look, you don't understand. I'm trying to stop the terrible thing that's going to happen. I'm the good guy this time. And he calls it a dark crisis that's coming. And I don't think that is a hint to the most recent crisis event dark crisis another yes. um, aka dark crisis on infinite earth i just think they were saying that a lot of the crises in the past have been uh, even though they're they're terrible and they're destructive there's a lot of bright lights and cosmic blinding cosmic energy and this is going to be a crisis from down below a crisis of dark energy and we'll see more about what he's talking about as we get into the um as we get into the actual event itself starting you know in a month's worth of publication time which will maybe be two weeks i don't know all right i've reached my coffee limit for the day and by now it's past eight o'clock at night so i'm just sipping on water but as uh, the Joker is giving this monologue, Duke says that something's wrong and he's doubled over in pain. And all of a sudden his hand, I think it's supposed to be his hand, lights up in this bright light. It sends Duke tumbling off the Batplane onto a shelf below. While Hal is distracted, the, jo- uh, the Joker escapes. And it is at that moment that Batman appears in the cave and says, What the hell would have you doing to my cave? And so, Hal confronts him about keeping the Joker prisoner in the Batcave. And Batman says, well, I needed the Joker to lead me to the next secret. And Hal's like, do you know how many laws you're breaking? How many how many Justice League bylaws? I need you to explain. And um, Batman says, I've been, spent a lot of time putting things back together. He references when he and the Joker fought... And again, that was towards the end of the New 52, and they ended up killing each other. And bat- I from what I guess, okay, here's what it says. Um, I call this my final invention, referring to the machine that the Joker just smashed. It was designed to help ensure the city would always have a Batman. But before it was finished, I died at the hands of the Joker. And that would have been the end of my story if not for the metal, if not for the Dionysium, I would have lost my life. Not just my memory. Ultimately, I used the machine to, to reconstitute myself. I don't know what he's talking about as far as reconstituting himself. Again, I have, I'm have i not abreast on all of the Batman that has been going on. But I did some research and Dionysium is the metal that empowers the Lazarus pits. So, um, And he talks about when he used the machine to kind of get himself back up to 100%. He had visions of himself from other realities being killed. It says, impossible versions of myself dying over and over again. Nothing in the machine I built could have given me those visions. It was the metal, the incredible, powerful metal. This metal I couldn't escape in any facet of my life, as though it were targeting me over and over for some unknown reason, as though it wanted me to understand it. I began to rebuild the machine from the ground up. I wanted to look inside the dark, the source of the metal's power i knew that once it did it would all come together it would all make sense and Hal says look man whatever you've been up to it's got the attention of the guardians of the universe it's that bad and uh, i like what batman says here doesn't that give you pause why would a mortal man on a backwater world doing a little bit of archaeology require interference by intergalactic peacekeepers why does your ring the most powerful weapon in the universe cower in the face? of a pure strain of this strange, impossible metal. And he pulls the uh, he pulls the dagger out from under the cape. He says, this was supposed to be the end of all this. I have the dimensional frequency of the energy locked. And with this dagger, I have the power to see the truth at the heart of the mystery. And when he brings the dagger out, it unlocks something in Duke that lets him see the structure of the machine as it's supposed to be before it was broken. And he, I don't know if, I don't think he's supposed to be recreating it with light energy, but he can see it in a form of light energy. And the energy that's radiating off of Duke is so powerful, it's shattering his helmet and making his helmet fall away. So Hal Jordan creates a, he he did the thing that that Kyle Rayner did back in the day where he created... He used his Green Lantern ring to create more Green Lantern rings. And he gives one, he gives a temporary one to Duke. And he says, all right, kid, this duplicate ring is just a loaner, okay? And if what I've been going through today is any indication, this is going to hurt a lot. You need to put it, you need to put all of yourself, all of your will into the ring and show us what you see. So Duke does that and he recreates the machine using Green Lantern energy. Um, There's a pillar in the center of the machine and, uh, or there's several pillars, uh, and there's, there's one bigger central one. And, um, uh, Duke is saying that, uh, there's all kinds of artifacts here. The psycho pirates mask, the, the owl's electrum, uh, referring to the court of owls and the electrum was the metal that let them bring that like let them keep their talons in kind of a state of half-life or undeath or something like that. Hyperelastic molecules, and I think that's supposed to be a reference to Plastic Man, Ancient Themysciran, and Elanian Artifacts, Relics of Order and Chaos. And um, with everything assembled, Batman plunges the dagger into the base of the pillar, which activates the machine fully. And this... At the top of... Page 32 of the digital copy. It's both really cool and it's really goofy at the same time. Because Batman is kind of... He's not sitting in the middle of the machine. But it looks like he is doing... It looks like he's on a weight machine. And he's squatting down and trying to lift a heavy weight bar. Uh, But... And meanwhile we have this kind of very Kirby-esque machinery all around him. And it looks like his face is in the middle of a big target. And um as this as and there's all this green green lantern energy crackling all around and we get the final excerpt from carter's journal it says at the beginning your story burned white hot with possibility you felt the fire in your veins you need to know to explore to understand and more than that the knowledge that you can chart your own course through that greater knowledge that you and only you control your destiny But with every step forward, your story cooled and hardened, pulling you inexorably toward a singular ending, an ending you can no longer choose, an ending that chooses you. And then it just ends with From the Journal of Carter Hall. So Batman falls out. Uh, Hal asks him what he sees, and Batman says, Darkness, I don't understand. I did everything right, but all I saw was darkness. And from there, we go to a lava-filled cavern 3,000 miles below Gotham City. And we have these cultists and they have these and they have robes that cover their body and their head. And then they have masks made out of what look like the skulls of saber-toothed tigers. And I think that's really clever because I remember from way back when I was a little kid, I had this book on prehistoric animals. And it had a page on saber-toothed tigers and it had a saber-toothed tiger skull and I remember the first thing I thought, and I went and showed my mom. I said, it looks like the Joker. And knowing what's coming in this series, I think that's really clever. But at the same time, it almost gives them a bat-like appearance. Um, and so the cultists are, are saying, it is done. He has stared into the abyss, talking about Batman. And we have hidden what lies within. The final seal is broken. After all these generations, the sacrifice is at hand. Let us see them. Let us see what he should have been if we had not prepared him correctly. The dark days are over. And there's this big, like, bat-like, um, I think it's supposed to be, I think I can't tell if it's supposed to be a drawing on this cave wall or or, like, a, a structure that's over him. But there's this portal opening above it. And they say the Dark Knights are coming. And in this portal, we see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Batman-like figures all crackling with, with Kirby crackle. And then a larger figure looming over them who was just a shadowed face in a hood. And we zoom in on the glowing eyes of the shadowed face in the hood. And it says, and with them, the true father of Batman. And the issue ends with the invasion begins with metal number one in stores in like a publication month from now. So, like I said, there's no Superman in this story, but it's really good. I'm a big fan of Scott Snyder. Um, that is why I need to read more Batman because outside of his Justice League arc that's coming up and. The Superman Unchained series from New 52. There is not much Scott Snyder's Superman. And I like Snyder's writing style. Sorry, I almost said Snyder's writing style. But yeah, I really like the conspiracy aspect of it. I really like everything tied in together. I think once the meta arc that began however long ago Snyder started this in Batman, and it ends with death metal. I don't think anybody has come back to the idea of the 9 or 10, or however many metals there are. I think it's a thing that's relatively contained within those bookends, but I think it's a really interesting era, and there are aspects of this era um, that are Bendis related that I have mixed feelings about. But as far as metal, as far as Justice League no justice, as far as the Justice League series follows in Death Metal, I'm very, very excited about what's coming in the new near future here on the podcast. So that is it for our comic book coverage for this week. So I'm going to take another really quick break. It'll be just a second for you, and then I'll be right back to wrap everything up. That was one heck of a long episode. I really enjoyed it. Um, I have to admit, my first recordings of the Fortress segment and the first time I talked about that cover for the eponymous Superman issues, I was not happy with the result, but after the re-record, I'm very happy, and uh, that discussion of the casting was delightful, and I hope you guys enjoyed it, too. If you would like to support what I'm doing here on Truth, Justice, and Hope, I would invite you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. The show is ad-free now. Which means I require, I not require, I rely on your support more than ever before. Um, I have a ton of content on the Patreon for you to enjoy as rewards, um, where I talk about my favorite classic post-Crisis Superman stories. I started all the way back in 1987 with the Pocket Universe Superboy saga, and I am currently uh, just about in the middle of Reign of the Superman. And so there is a... I didn't cover every Superman issue in there, but I did cover my favorites. There are a lot. Um, Once I finish the Reign, I'm going to take a break from the 90s for a while. I'm going to do a a breakdown of 2006's Superman Returns. I'm going to do it in 30-minute increments, not 30 minutes of show of movie runtime but 30 minutes of me talking about it time which might take a while and when i finish that i'm going to jump into the era of the latter half of the 2000s beginning with the up up and away story arc that immediately follows infinite crisis including kind of a brief just overview of what happened in infinite crisis as far as from the superman perspective and i will go forward from there so there's a lot. You should check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it, and it doesn't cost very much to do so. I, 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 I think it's I think it's pretty reasonable. But you know, your mileage may vary. Um, if you'd like to support the show in other ways, I would love it if you could leave me a five star review wherever you get your podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, on Spoutable by searching for Truth, Justice, and Hope. Next week, I'm going to round out the month of July for 2017 with the last two issues of the Revenge story arc from Action Comics. That'll be issues 983, excuse me, and 984. And I will also talk about Trinity number 11 and Super Sons number 6. I think that's going to be... A fun time um, that will actually be no. I take it back. So I've read a little bit farther than that in Action Comics, but not much. Um, I think once we get to was it 980? I think 986 is maybe the farthest i read in that. So we're getting we're getting pretty close to 1,000, which is gonna be again really interesting when we get to it. But if you guys hang in there with me, I will get to it just as soon as I possibly can. And I will be back next week to continue that journey. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love ya.